We're going to be talking about the forgiveness of sins this morning as we continue our series through the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. If you want to turn your Bibles there, we're going to pick up in verse 21 and read through verse 35 here in just a moment. Before we get to God's Word, though, I want to tell you a story. Read you an account about a, a man, a man who was known as the Nazi hunter. <clears throat> and he had good reason to be the Nazi hunter. He was the world's foremost finder of Nazis around the world post-World War II. He was a man who was named Simon Wiesenthal. He was a Polish Jew. And he had good reason to be pursuing Nazis. This man, as a young man had seen his own grandmother killed by the Nazis in the hallway of their home. He saw his own mother pushed into a cattle car with, 80, with 87 other women and taken off to a concentration camp never to be seen again. He wrote a book called The Sunflower. And it begins that book with this account from his time in the prison camp, working in a Nazi death camp long, right before the war came to an end. And here's the account he gives. He was working in a hospital for German soldiers, working as an orderly. And while he was working there, a nurse suddenly ran up to him, grabbed him, asking, Are you a Jew? Which was kind of a silly question, since he had a Star of David on his chest in a disheveled outfit. She hustled him through the hallways to a private room. And there, as he entered into the private room, there was laying there an SS soldier close to death. He was wrapped in head to toe in gauze so that his, own, his eyes were covered. Only things exposed were his mouth his ears, and his nose. And the man spoke to him. The man said this, My name is Carl, and I must tell you about a horrible deed that I have done. Then Carl began to reminisce about his childhood and growing up as a Catholic and the faith that he had had, but then lost it all as a member of the Hitler Youth Corps. He explained how one day, as he served in the SS, they were serving in Ukraine, and his unit stumbled on a booby trap and a number of the men in their unit were killed. And in their anger and their fury, they decided to take it out on the closest village. Where there, they herded up 300 Jews, packed them into a three-story house, doused the house with gasoline, and set it on fire. And they went on to account in graphic detail some of the horrific things he saw during that day and other things that he had done during the course of that event and other events in his service of the SS. Then Carl said this to Simon, I am left here alone with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are, but only that you are a Jew. And that is enough. I know that I have done what I have done is terrible. I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness. But I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know what I'm asking is too much. But without your forgiveness, I cannot die in peace. Simon Wiesenthal writes about the weight that he felt, the psychological weight that was upon him, that essentially this man was asking him to represent the entire Jewish race and was asking for their forgiveness. He felt the crushing burden of his race bearing down on him and began to stare out the window. Then he stood and he thought, and he made up his mind, and he turned and he walked out of the room without a word. He wrote a book after that account, the book that I mentioned, The Sunflower, in which he asked this question, was his failure to forgive pardonable? 
He wrote to scholars and theologians, artists and poets. He wrote to Buddhists and Christians. He asked other Jews, Catholics and Protestants, priests and rabbis. And then in the book, he accounted and responded to their various responses to his question. Some of those responses were like this. An American professor said, The enormity of the crime of the SS and the Nazi group against you exceeds all possibility of forgiveness. A novelist said, Let the SS man die unshriven. Let him go straight to hell. Many others have gone to this book and sought to answer the question even though they weren't asked and have over the years to answer this question themselves. Here's a response from someone you may be fairly familiar with and that he is contemporary with us. And he answers the questions... Wiesenthal's question this way. He says that no Jew, the Jews cannot forgive the Nazis. And here is the logic that he uses. He says, God himself does not forgive a person who has sinned against a human being unless that human being has been forgiven by his victim or victims. Therefore, people can never forgive murder since the one person who can forgive is gone forever. It's a quote by Dennis Prager. In the face of a world in which all has gone wrong, awful and terrible things happen. People do horrific things to others and to themselves. In the face of people who fail us day after day after day, the question stands, must we forgive? Or to put it in the words of the creed, must we believe in the forgiveness of sins? The forgiveness of sins for us and the forgiveness of sins for others. Matthew 18 is where we are this morning. Turn your Bibles there. We're going to pick up in verse 21. And I'll read through verse 35. Hear God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should be pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do it to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This sends the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But the word of our God stand forever. All right, three points for you this morning as we walk through this idea, this concept of forgiveness. As the Apostles' Creed says, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And we will seek to answer Wiesenthal's question and the Apostle Peter's question in just a moment. But we'll begin with this first heading for us this morning as I want to define and clarify the practice of forgiveness. What is forgiveness? 
I'm going to give you two kind of answers to that, or two parts of what it is. And first and foremost, at its core, at its most surface level as well, is that forgiveness is canceling a debt. Forgiveness is first and foremost the canceling of a debt. In the story today, a man owns a massive, seemingly unpayable debt to a king or a master. And he pleads forgiveness of the debt, and he has forgiven the debt. Forgiveness is saying, and what this master says to this man who pleads is, you do not have to repay this debt. Your debt has been paid. But the debt has to go somewhere, right? If you owe the bank a million dollars and they forgive you the debts, someone still has to pay. There is still a cost to paying that debt for you. Who took on the cost of this man's debt? It wasn't the man himself. It was the master. In a sense, what he did, and another, I think, significant word that we need to use in terms of forgiveness is this master absorbed the cost of this man's debt. To further articulate and explain what it means to forgive is that when you forgive, you choose to absorb the suffering, the pain, the words that were spoken to you, the things done to you, and you do not repay them. You do not make the person who has offended you pay for their sins. Forgiveness is being willing to carry the pain inflicted upon you instead of turning around and inflicting that pain upon those who have offended you. Forgiveness is saying simply, that's what you said just now. What you did to me, how you hurt me, I'm going to absorb it. How do we absorb the cost of forgiveness? What does it look like practically in our lives to forgive someone? Well, Counselor Timothy Lane, who works for the um, CCEF, which is the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, he says this, he gives us some really practical uh, outline of what it looks like to practically forgive somebody, what it, what it would, how it would play out in your life. When you've said, I forgive you, what that therefore means for you in your life. And he says three things. First, is that you promise there in saying you're forgiving them that you won't use it against them. Now, I'm going to address this in just a second, but it doesn't mean you don't forget the offense. But it means you won't use the offense against them. You won't bring it up constantly. You won't use it to hold collateral over them, to hold a cloud over them. Second, you promise that you won't talk to others about their failure. Generally speaking, it means that you won't gossip about what they've done. This is another form of simply making them pay it back by slandering their name, by communicating to everybody that you can find what those people did to you. This is simply... The first, just in different form. Now, I, I want to give kind of a corrective statement to what he says here that I think he would hold to. But there are certain situations in life, this is a general rule that you don't speak about what people have done to you. But there are certain specific situations where you have a responsibility to tell others. Often those are legal responsibilities. You do not have a child abuser in your life and simply let them go free without communicating that to other people. But generally speaking, in the vast majority of, of offenses that we experience in life... Forgiveness would be played out by saying, I'm not going to talk about your failure to other people. I'm not going to slander you because of this sin. Third, Lane says this, that you promise that you will seek not to dwell on their failure. Often this is a way in which we get back at people in a very passive sort of way. But often what we do is we sit there and we think about the offense over and over and over again. And it's not simply that we let it come to our mind, but when it comes to our mind, we chew on it. We savor it. We think about the things that we would like to say. So these are the things. This is the practical workings of how forgiveness ought to look in your life. How do you do with that? Do you do that pretty well with your spouse or with your children or somebody who hurts you at work? Do you keep that flaw or that failure to yourself or do you spread gossip about them? Do you use it as collateral over your spouse for the things that they did five, six years ago that you're still storing up 
a record of those things to bring out at some other point that is advantageous for you. So that's what forgiveness is. Now, really quickly, what, is, what forgiveness is not. I want to maybe make a corrective here as to often what Christians think. Forgiveness is not amnesia. God does not have amnesia about your sins. There is a misunderstanding about a beautiful and wonderful passage in the Scriptures that has maybe consciously or subconsciously led Christians to think that forgiveness is merely just not remembering, not thinking about what somebody has done to you. Jeremiah 31 34 says this. God says this, I will, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will remember their sin no more. But the problem is God is kind of like an elephant, right? He doesn't forget. We have a God who is omniscient. To say that God does not remember our sin does not mean he literally has pushed it out of his memory and he has no memory of your failures in this life. The word remember there in Jeremiah 31 is a covenantal word. It's a word where he is saying that I promise to not treat you according to what you have done in the past. I I promise to not treat you according to what you have done and the way you have failed your covenant against me. It's a memory word. I will not treat you. I will act as if this act never happened. I think Psalm 103 verses 10 through 12 bring this kind of idea and this concept and this connection between pushing aside and forgetting our iniquities with forgiveness. It says this in verse 10, God does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. In verse 12 it says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. To say that he has removed transgression from you is to say, as it says in verse 10, that he will not repay to you your iniquities. To forgive you means that he does not judge you and bring condemnation down upon you for those sins. Simply because you remember the offense and the pain of what someone has done to you does not necessarily mean that you have not forgiven them. Understand that. Now, it can mean, if you're holding on to those things that I talked about just a minute ago, if you're ruminating on those failures and those sins, on those past offenses, then that would be a lack of forgiveness. But simply because you remember the pain that a husband or a parent brought into your life and it comes into your memory does not mean that you have failed to forgive them. It's another opportunity, though, to walk through the process of forgiveness. And nor does not remembering mean that you don't put up boundaries. I'll talk about this in a minute, but there is a difference between forgiving somebody and trusting somebody. So if you have a husband who has abused you and and, and abused your, your children... You may forgive them in your heart. You may offer uh, forgiveness to them, but that does not necessarily mean it's safe for them to come back in the home. Forgiveness is the beginning of reconciliation, but it is not the fullness of it. And that leads us to our second point. True forgiveness. Forgiveness is first, is the canceling of a debt, but second, true forgiveness has reconciliation in mind. True forgiveness has reconciliation as the goal, or in fact, forgiveness is actually the first step in the larger goal of the obedience of seeking reconciliation with others who have offended you. We are not only to move away from what they did did to us, but we are to move towards the people who have offended us. Forgiveness is the doorway and the ground upon which the steps of reconciliation occur. We must understand that forgiveness is both a legal event, it is a a covenantal event, but it's also a relational process. It's a one-time event, but also a relational process. So let me, let me talk to you about God's forgiveness of you. And then use that to image how we, ought to, how we play out these things in our own lives. Did you know that God forgives you in two different kinds of ways? There is judicial forgiveness, 
Which is this, that before God, as a sinner, you stand before a courtroom where a holy God has declared that you, a sinner, deserve his wrath and are condemned and deserving of judgments. But in the courtroom of God's, of God's eternal decrees, he has declared you forgiven because of what Jesus did for you. He has wiped the record clean. Only the righteousness of Christ is on your record now, regardless of your performance. And you are accepted. That is the one-time promise of forgiveness. But there's also relational forgiveness that God has with us. You see, this is the forgiveness that moves outside of the courtroom and moves into the relational aspect between us and God. This is the forgiveness that he gives to us as a father. You see, even as, even as a Christian, you sin, don't you? You fail your heavenly father at various times. And so what we see is we have his judicial forgiveness, but we also have his relational forgiveness. Our sins often strain our relationship with God. It doesn't mean that he does not accept us or he doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that we're going to be condemned and judged for those sins. But it does mean that our experience of that relationship is strained. It does grieve God the Father's heart when you sin against him, even as a Christian. And therefore, there does need to be reconciliation in that walk and relationship with him. So here's how I want to compare this to your relationship with other people. There are oftentimes, let's say someone hurts you and offends you, and at the very moment of the offense, they come to you and they ask you for the forgiveness, and you say, yes, I forgive you. That is the covenantal act. That is the legal act, saying, I am promising to forgive you. This is what forgiveness is in that moment. To say I forgive you is kind of like a marriage vow. You know what you do when when, when a couple stands in front of me and shares their marriage vow? What they're doing is they're making a promise not for that day, simply. It's not simply for the wedding day. It's actually what they're doing is making a promise for a hundred years from now. They're saying, I promise to love you and be faithful to you tomorrow and two weeks from now and 20 years from now. I'm putting it on my calendar to be faithful to you. And the same way, that's how forgiveness works. In that statement, I forgive you. It is a covenantal judicial act where you're saying, Given. I will not condemn you for this. I will not repay you for this. And that promise is for today, tomorrow, and 20 years from now. I will not bring this back up in 10 years. I will not hold this against you. But then there's the relational fulfillment of that promise, isn't there? Let's say someone offends you here in this church on Wednesday. This past Wednesday, someone offended you, hurt you deeply, and they came to you and they asked for your forgiveness, and you say, I forgive you. But there is a process to forgiveness as well. There's a relational component to be where we are reconciled to one another through the process of forgiveness. See, you may have been hurt and said you've forgiven somebody on Wednesday, but then you come into church on Sunday and they sit four rows in front of you. What do you have to do again? All of a sudden, the hurt and the offense comes washing back over you. You have to, you have to stay faithful to the promise you made on Wednesday, not to hold the fence against them. And in so doing, walking the steps of forgiveness today, tomorrow, on Sunday, next week, is to walk the steps of reconciliation. Until that relationship is restored in in its fullness and in a beautiful way as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now understand me on this. It is possible as a Christian to forgive someone and never experience reconciliation. To never experience reconciliation. Romans 12, 17 and 18 says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but get thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There, are, there is reckon, Forgiveness is something that you can do unilaterally. Reconciliation is something that hap, takes both parties. That doesn't mean that you are not responsible for continuing to give the, give the forgiveness and doing all that is possible as it is within your hands to seek peace and reconciliation with that person. You must do that. You must seek that reconciliation. But it is not guaranteed because we, we function and we have to forgive people who often don't even ask for our forgiveness. 
I believe it is scriptural, clearly scriptural that forgiveness is, a, is the larger part, is part of the larger part of seeking reconciliation. So I ask you this though, in light of that, many of you, we have we have made forgiveness cheap often. Have you ever heard the statement, "Oh, I forgave you the second you offended me"? I've always found that statement to be so trite. At least the way it's stated, because then they usually come back and they hold it over you. See, if you are not actually seeking reconciliation with someone as best you can, then it is proof that perhaps you actually haven't forgiven them in the first place. (coughs) Forgiveness is saying, I'm going to cancel the debt, I'm going to absorb the cost and the pain of this, but it also means that that is the beginning of the process of seeking reconciliation in a right relationship with those folks. But why don't we do this? Why? Because it is so hard. By its very nature, absorbing the cost of someone's offenses against you is sacrificial. It is dying to self. And it is, by its very nature, deeply painful. So what must we do? This is the question that Simon Wiesenthal and the Apostle Peter asked to Jesus. Must we still forgive? So I want to look at the second thing this morning, and that's the necessity of forgiveness. And really, we're not simply going to look at the necessity of forgiveness, but we're also going to look at the imperative of forgiveness. Here's how the passage begins. Peter comes and says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Exegetically, very short in commentary, what Jesus is saying is you always forgive. Always, always, always you forgive. When someone sins against you and offends you, you must forgive. It is necessary. There's two reasons There's two reasons why it's necessary, or one reason why it's necessary, and one reason why it's an imperative here. The first is this. Forgiveness is absolutely necessary, because if we don't, it will destroy our lives. If we don't, it will destroy our lives. Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15 says this. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble And by it, many become defiled. What's the image there? Saying, don't let bitterness and anger take hold in your heart so that it defiles your whole life and ruins your whole life. Bitterness and anger starts with an offense. The the great ground on which anger and bitterness grows up in is unforgiveness. It is the place where it thrives. And we say things like this. When we withhold forgiveness, what we say is stuff like, They just need to understand how much what they've done hurts other people. And I don't want to encourage this sort of behavior. And they they haven't apologized for what they've done, so I can't forgive them. But unforgiveness, anger, and bitterness, if this takes hold in your life, it will not imprison other people. It will imprison you. It will destroy you. A failure to to forgive inflicts a terrible price on you. Anne Lamont was lost significant credibility in my mind the last couple of weeks since she's come out in support of Planned Parenthood. But she says this. Don't hold that too much against her in this quote. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. In other words, what she's saying is unforgiveness. You think you're poisoning somebody else when you're drinking the rat poison and then you're waiting for all your bitterness to kill the other person and they don't even seem to notice. Only you are dying. Frederick Buechner goes on to talk about this same idea about how anger springs up in us because of our unforgiveness. And he says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations to come. 
to savor to the last twosome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in many ways. It is the feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. When you fail to forgive, you destroy your own heart and your own life and your own soul. You actually become a wraith. Someone who has a hole in their life. How many people have you known whose whole life is dictated by the pain of the past? The unwillingness to forgive a parent who hurt them, the words that they said, the relationship that went wrong, and the bitterness has consumed them. They see everything through this lens. So forgiveness is absolutely necessary, but also we see in this passage that it's absolutely imperative. If we don't, God will destroy us. So what's left of us, from us destroying us, God will take out. Pick it up in verse 29 of the account in Matthew 18. It says this, So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. This is when the man has gone out after having been forgiven his debt, and he finds this man who owes a debt to him. And the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And the man refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The end of this parable is haunting and it's terrifying for those of you that are holding grudges. Or for any of us, for that matter. The king has forgiven the servant, and yet the servant fails and will, refuses to forgive another person. And at the end, what are we told? He's thrown into jail. And actually, he actually goes beyond that. That phrase, that the master turns him over to the jailers, means that he turned him over to beatings. This is a graphic description of the judgment. Jesus, to make sure we get the point, says, This is how my Heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is saying an unforgiving heart will lead to what? Eternal punishment. An unforgiving heart leads to eternal destruction. What does this warning mean for us? If, If you know much about Christianity, you're agitated right now. Because what about this whole thing about God forgiving us? And we don't merit our salvation and we don't get heaven because of our good works? What about all that? Is Jesus here saying that we must merit the forgiveness of God by forgiving other people? Is that what he's saying? If you forgive, you'll go to heaven. If you don't forgive, you go to hell. Is that, is that the rule of Christianity? If that was the case, then why did Jesus even come? He has no reason to come. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, what is going on here in this text is, if you don't forgive your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your co-worker, whoever has offended you, that is the sign in your heart that you have never experienced the forgiveness of God. If you don't extend forgiveness, it is the greatest of proof that you have never experienced God's forgiveness of you. That you don't believe in the forgiveness of sins. To put it, That's the negative way. To put it positively, it's this. The greatest sign that you've experienced forgiveness of sins is that you forgive other people. The greatest sign that you understand and you believe and have experienced the forgiveness of sins is that you extend the forgiveness to other people. So that leads us to the question, what has to happen in order for us to be able to extend forgiveness? It's right there. We have to experience it ourselves. Three things in order to experience forgiveness this morning. 
to see and understand the forgiveness of God in your life, you absolutely have to you absolutely need this. One is you have to see your debts. In order to experience the forgiveness of God, first you have to see your debts. Perhaps the biggest reason why we don't extend forgiveness to other people or even trust that God has forgiven us is first and foremost because we don't think we need it that badly. Miroslav Volf, again the Croatian theologian, says this, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. What he's saying is we don't forgive because we've made those who offended us as less than human. And then he connects this, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. The reason why you can treat someone as less than human is because you think you are more than human. You've excluded yourself from the community of sinners. The second that you think you're better than other people, you will not forgive others. Why don't we think we need forgiveness is because we don't think we have sinned that badly. This is what Jesus says to Simon, the Pharisee. When a sinful woman washes his feet and pours perfume over him, and he's frustrated by it, but he says, she has been forgiven much, and so she loves much. But you, Simon doesn't see that he needs to be forgiven. In order to experience the forgiveness, we must see that our debt is unpayable. This is what is being communicated here in this passage. When this man goes, and it says that the master, or this king, he owes this king a 10,000 talent debt. And then the other man, who we won't forgive, owes him a 100 denarii debt. A denarii is one day's wages. So let me give you the picture. One day's wages means this other man owes the, the other servant about 100 days worth of work. 100 days debt, or four months of work. Well, a talent is six thousand days wages and it says that there are ten thousand talents that he owes to the master that means this man would it would take him 20 years simply to earn one talent to pay back the master and so it would take him two hundred thousand years of labor in order to pay this off what is jesus saying this is an impossible debt it is an eternal debt it is beyond anything that we can it was endless. And if this man's owed the debt to this master to forgive that man's debt was to lose the world. If the master would forgive this man's debt was to forgive him all the wealth that the world had. Another way of understanding what a talent was is it was worth about 75 pounds of something. About 75 pounds of something. And this guy owes 750,000 pounds of something because he owns 10,000 talents. If it was gold, if he owed this man gold, that would be equivalent to $14.5 trillion worth of income. You know, in that day, the Roman Empire ran off of $1 million to fund the entire empire. Again, Jesus is saying, it is an endless debt. And not only that, here's the point of the story, is that you cannot pay this debt back. And in fact, we can never get out of this debt. Because you notice what it says is, who will get thrown in jail? The man and his wife and his children. See, the, the vast majority of the world, of world history, is if you have a debt and you don't pay it off, it gets passed down to the next generation. Here's what we owe, and this is the truth of biblical history, is that our father Adam owes the 10,000 talent debt. And for every generation, we have not only failed to pay it back, but we have added to the debt ourselves. That's the story of the scriptures. Good deeds will not pay back what we owe God. It cannot. It's insurmountable. And so therefore, what has to happen? Somebody else has to pay the debt. Somebody else who is not connected to the family of Adam has to pay the debt. The only hope you have is forgiveness 
is for Jesus to come down. And here we must see the costliness of the debt. In order to see and experience forgiveness, not only must you see the weight and the impossibility of paying back the debt that you owe God, but you must also see the costliness of forgiveness. The king went... The heart of the king went out to this man, it says in verse 27. It says he had pity on him, and so he forgave him his debts. And it cost him everything. God the Father has pity on us. It says that Jesus came, as he looked over Jerusalem, he had pity on them like sheep without a shepherd. He came down to have pity in order to pay the debt that we could not pay. Hebrews 9, verse 22 says this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What did it cost in order to forgive you of your sins? The most perfect being in the whole universe had to come out of heaven, had to absorb all of your failure into his body, had to be destroyed in order to pay back what you and I owed. Understand this, the greatest need of your life is to see that on the cross that your debt was paid. All of it. Every last drop of it. It makes no sense to think there is anything left. The greatest need of your life is to know that you are forgiven. It is the only hope you have for joy and for, for real, lasting relationships in this life. You can't have those unless you believe in this. It's the only way you can have hope for your marriages, for your parenting, for your children. The only hope we can have for the church, because we offend each other all the time. As if there's forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that your sins are forgiven? It's interesting here in this passage... Why would the servant go out? He's just been forgiven his debt. Why would he then immediately, it says immediately he leaves. And he goes and finds this man who owns him this small debt. And what we see in the passage is, he is desperate to get this man to pay him. Why is he so desperate? He doesn't believe that he has been forgiven. He goes and he strangles this man because he needs to squeeze everything he can out of all the people who owe him money because he still thinks that he owes the master a debt. See, if you don't believe this, then you will crush everybody around you. You have to believe this. And for so many of you, the reason why you have lived a hollow, joyless Christian life in which the Christian life has crushed you is because you have never gotten beyond this. You believe, practically speaking, mentally, oh yes, God forgives my sins. But you have never experienced the sense that not one of your sins is still with you. God has forgiven them all. Getting pregnant out of wedlock. Having that abortion. What you said to your child or to your spouse. The time you hit your kid. It is forgiven. Do you believe it? Do you love it? Have you experienced it? Can I plead with you to do nothing else? Martin Luther almost went crazy until he experienced the forgiveness of God. Would you do nothing else but scream at God until he, you experience the sense of his forgiveness for you? Because if you do, your Christian life will be not, If you don't do that, your Christian life will be a farce. It will be something far intended until you understand this. The good news of the gospel is that you are forgiven. Could you be amazed by that once again? The way to forgive is to be astonished by the forgiveness that you have received. Are you astonished? Are you amazed? Or have you forgotten? It's a beautiful thing that comes up in our hymn writers, right? That grace is amazing. It's in the words of the most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. 
And can it be, Charles Wesley, I think, brings this out so beautifully, the astonishment that he has over the fact that he's been forgiven. You ever read the lines, and can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He ends with a question mark in the hymn. You ever seen that in the hymn book? And then he goes on and says this in the next line, died he for, ca- for me that caused his pain? Question mark again. What's he doing? How do you, what's, what does your voice do when you ask a question? Huh? You go up. He's asking the question this way in the hymn. Died he for me who caused his pain? How can that be? And can it be that I should gain? He's questioning it. This is unbelievable. This is amazing. He is astonished once again. We sang it this morning. It is well with my soul. It is my favorite line in all of hymnody because of the poetic poetry in there, but also the incredible consciousness of the writer. What does he say in the third verse? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And he knows what he's going to write out for the rest of the verse, but then he stops and he pins these words. The rest of the line he's going to write out. But before he even puts in the pen, he is overwhelmed by what he's about to write down. And then he continues. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You experienced that? One final push in order to experience the forgiveness of God is that you must see the goal of his forgiveness. See, there's a debt that was paid, but you also have to see the goal was a reconciliation. To bring who? To reconcile God to who? A wayward, whoring bride. That's what he did. Ray Cortez tells a pastor, a pastor in Florida, tells the story of a friend of his, a man who was unfaithful to his wife. And he was going home to face her wrath. And he assumed their marriage was over and that she would leave. But his more immediate concern was that she would kill him. So he sat on the couch. And he confessed his sin. He said, I've been a failure and I've been a fool. And I have hurt you. I have defiled our marriage and I have been so unfaithful. She said, she turned to him and she looked him in the face and she said, you have hurt me so much. And I am so angry with you, but you are my husband, and we will get through this. And then she bent down, she pressed, pulled his head up, and she kissed him. The man said that kiss saved his life. It changed his life forever. Only the kiss of God for you and me, an unfaithful bride, will make you into a forgiver. Only the kiss of God. He comes to reconcile us make us a bride. He comes to make us a child. We who are enemies are now his children. Let me end with this story. To drive this home, then we'll close. Here's the scene. It's a courtroom in South Africa. A frail, 70-year-old black woman stands to her feet. Facing her across the room are several white police officers, one of whom is a man named Mr. Vanderbeck. This man has just been tried and found guilty in the murder of this woman's son and her, husband's from year, her husband from years before. It was Mr. Vanderdeck who had done these things. It had been established in the court of law. He had come to this woman's house years back. He had dragged her son out the door, and he had shot him in the head. And then he and his police buddies grabbed beers, and they burned his body while they partied nearby. Several years later, Mr. Vanderbeck 
came back with his policeman, and they grabbed the woman's husband. For two years, she didn't hear anything about her husband. She assumed perhaps he was dead. Then one day, Mr. Vanderbeck came and got the woman herself, took her out to a spot near the river where she was shown her husband who had been bound and beaten. They poured gasoline on him, and they lit him on fire. The last word she heard her husband ever say was, Father, forgive them. And now this woman would stand in the courtroom and as she listened to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbreck, a member of, of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, then turned to her and asked, So what do you want done? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? She answers this way. I want three things. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She paused and then she continues. My husband and my son were my only family. Therefore, secondly, I want Mr. Vanderbeck to become my son. I would like for him to come to my home twice a month, to come down to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining within me. And finally, she said this. I want a third thing. I would like Mr. Vanderbreck to know that I offer him forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive me. This was the wish of my husband, and so I would kindly ask someone to come now along my side and help me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbreck in my arms, embrace him, and let him know that he is forgiven. This is the gospel played out in our world. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. We were the policemen. And we dragged the son out of the city and we nailed him to a cross. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. And he does. Would you see that your sins are washed away? You're called sons. You're called daughters. That you're cleansed and you're reconciled to the Father. Then, then maybe we'd have the strength to forgive those who hurt us. Let's pray. a great passage it says this our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this daily bread and forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors O oh, gracious heavenly father I give silence so that people can think about those they need to forgive God, we cry out to you and we'd ask that you would forgive us for being so unlike you, for being so trite and trivial and angry and bitter and holding on to the offenses of the past, the offenses of this morning perhaps as well. Gracious God, I pray that you would press the truth of your forgiveness down upon us. May your spirit move in this room now that people would experience the fact that they are washed clean, that they are loved perfectly, that they are reconciled to the Father, and that they can plead for your help to go and forgive those who hurt them. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he paid the debt that we owed.
It's to him we sing. Amen.